Rocking chair, chair session. With Elisa Di Batista. Maria Teresa Barber. Hello, everyone. And welcome to RCS Rocking Chair Sessions, Volume 87, with Mr. Mark Diamond. Welcome, Mr. Mark. Hey, girls. <laughs> Mr. Mark Diamond. I liked it a lot. Mr. Mark Diamond is actually almost a neighbor to the bakehouse. Yes. Four blocks away on Check 7th out Avenue. That is correct. And we are very happy that you came by to visit us today. Post Basel. Post Basel. Post Basel. Which is a very specific kind of vibe. Right? Totally. It's a good vibe. Everybody looks haggard and tired and <laughs> also a little bit Not happy. Not to that say it's that we look haggard or tired. I think girls are looking fine. <laughs> Um, and thank you for bringing gifts. Um, we have wonderful beer tonight for me and Mark. And Elisa doesn't get any. Um, um, Mr. Blue Point Brewing Company. Are we Optical Vision. Are, are we sponsoring We're, spo we're hoping we're that they'll sponsor Mark Diamond. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. really Optical Illusion. Do it. Do it. Um, talking about Illusion, that has obviously pertains to your work, also the Illusion of the 3D. But before we hop into your work, you mentioned something before we started. And I got super happy because we don't have a lot of, I feel, these type of individuals in Miami, which is Panamanians. I mentioned my background. I'm half Panamanian. I was born in Panama. You mentioned that you were born in the zona or the zone, the military area of Panama. I'm curious, does that make you a military brat in, or, or like a Navy one or an no, Army one? No, because I came after the war oh, okay. and I did not, uh, I did not live um, in the zone. I just happened to go to Zonian Hospital oh. in Ancon. Okay. My parents at that point already lived on the Panamanian side. Oh, nice. But when they were younger, before I came along in during World War II, they were in the zone. Nice. And they're both from Brooklyn. Cool. And they met in Panama. Fine. And they fell in love and fell in love with Panama and decided <laughs> that Mm, why should we go back to Brooklyn? This is paradise. <laughs> and they stayed there 28 years. Wow. What did they do in Panama? Well, my father worked, uh, part of his gig was, uh, he was a stringer for the night NBC nightly news Huntley Brinkley show between 1953 and 1963. So for those 10 years, if anything went down of interest to the news in uh the Caribbean or, say, Nicaragua had an earthquake or there would be a riot in um, Managua or uh, chasing, uh, trying to get film of uh, insurgents in Bolivia, some kind of activity that was part of the news, he would be there, Johnny, on the spot, wow. the gringo with a camera. Stop. And um, everyone thought he was CIA because what the hell is this? Gringo with a movie camera doing in the middle of a freaking jungle or wherever the heck they were. But the fact was that he, he did not work for the CIA and uh, he simply was a newsman. And um, Film. Uh, and my mother worked for Life magazine. She was one of the few uh, women in the era who was both photographer, writer uh, in the 50s and early 60s uh, for the, uh, the United Press International uh, Vision magazine. Uh, she was an editor as well as a photographer, and she edited the largest newspaper in Panama. And uh, actually, she received the highest award 
that a civilian can receive from the president of Panama. That's lovely. Yeah, my mom wow. was. That's amazing. Quite the lady. Super heavy-duty lady. That's awesome. She wrote a book called Gringa, My Love Affair with Panama. What? Yeah. I have got to I find this read boy. That. I, I'm going to gift you, ladies. Oh, oh my God. goodness. I'm super excited. This That's is amazing. No, she's and, an inspiration. Oh, yeah. amazing. Because you just mentioned, like, your dad was film and video and, and your mom No video. Was, no, this like, is well, before recording. Video. Well, would it be, film. like, film? Actual film? Yes. Straight, oh. 16 millimeter. No, 16, so what would Bullock's happen? camera. Exactly. Oh, so wow. he would film 16 millimeter, black and white. And then he'd put it on a plane because he lived in Panama and the mm-hmm. film simply needed to get to New York and they would develop it and then it would be uh, up shown as part of the nightly news, a little clip, Phenomenal. not him on camera speaking, but more or less the scenario as what he was saw being it. Shot. Wow. Um, like a documentary. Yeah, ultimately, actually, my mom moved to Miami be, partly because it was like, I'm tired of this because she used used to get shot at all the time. Oh, no. You know, if you're some random white guy with a movie camera in the middle of a riotous crowd of whatever, Panamanians, Bolivians, what have you, it looks like you look like somebody you're really taken out of the scene. You know, (laughs) oh, my Lord. Um, anyway, so she was scared and terrified all yeah, the time that he wouldn't come tired, back from really her. Yeah. That's why we left too. Yeah. Okay, so for an Austrian person, can you explain really shortly what was going on at that time? Like who was fighting who? You said Bolivians and... You mean when she was referring to her parents before the... No, when you when your father was... Okay, because these are like no, slightly different, different generations. Eras. I feel yeah. like there's always different um, yeah. like cyclical in the, things. In my like case, that. well, you have to understand, it's like uh, Senator Hayakawa once said... Uh, regarding uh, America and Panama and Colombia, we stole it fair and square, i.e. Panama was part of Colombia. And uh, we did various things to secure their independence and our location in the Mm -hmm. canal. For the canal. So that was the political motivation behind helping them uh to become independent. Yes. And then when this... That's when the troubles really started, probably, well, right? Well, this went on for quite some time, as mm. it, as until President Carter uh, effectually gave the canal back to the Panamanians, mm-hmm. for which he was quite hated, uh, but on the other hand, also quite loved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. Uh, when I came to Miami, it was like, oh, okay. How old are it's you? It's pretty much like Panama. It's just another English-speaking banana too. republic. That's all. Yeah, it's tropical. But it feels like Panama. I'm. I feel like the weather's warm in a way, but I also feel like there's a sense of like you grow plantain trees here, mangoes, avocados, a lot of the papayas, guayabas. Chayote, here. Have you? We'll talk later about that. But there's a lot of like vegetation that's very similar because we are in the subtropics. So that's always really. Really fascinating. I felt fairly comfortable. I mean, my mother said in 63 when we got here, she said that she could speak to the kids in a secret language and no one would understand us. (laughs) She was referring to Spanish. (laughs) And uh, that really didn't quite work out as the ideal secret language in Miami. It didn't last for too long. But it was a pleasant thought on Mm -hmm. her part, you know. But it was also a bit naive, yeah. Good for you too, though. Like when you did have people and like coming in from all over the world, you're like, "Oh, I could talk to you. We're fine." Exactly. It was so fluid that it it was meaningless 
uh, and effortless. Uh, it wasn't an issue, is what I mean, not meaningless. It was it was very significant, actually. It was just it was just an effortless thing. So when I arrived here, it was like, hey, you want to speak Spanish? Okay, great. You want to speak English? Okay, great. Whatever. Let's rock. And I was like seven <laughs> or nine years old, and it, you know, oh. it really made no damn difference whether somebody wanted to speak English or Spanish. It's been that way ever since. Awesome. Yeah. And the connection to, to Brooklyn, since both of your parents came from there, you had no interest in leaving Miami. You're like, this is a nice oh, spot. I like it here. Or did you venture out and adventure? Yeah. Um, I've been, there's been various times when I've been in, you know, in the process of being seduced, I guess, for lack of a better description, uh, to go to a, um, dare I say, real city in which um, some of my skill set can be maybe more... Um, financially remunerated, you know, more appropriately, something commensurate with the, I have a very, um, very honed skill set in a, in very specific also, extremely right? Extremely micro niche of a black art. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, it's incredible and so, um, invariably, and this is an odd statistic, but for the last 40 years professionally working in Miami, um, I think about 90% of my revenue has come from out of town and out of the country. Wow. So anytime that a, a local friend or person in the community or even family, anytime somebody near here um, buys a piece from me or commissions something, um, or like talking to you, your four blocks away, it's, it's exciting uh, to me because I feel, oh wow, the community isn't entirely sleepwalking in this process. Um, but but <laughs> since here. I've been doing it so darn long, um, I, I get the vibe that this is just the way things are. Mm -hmm. And I remember as a young artist in my teens, that I looked up to a handful of older guys, mainly guys, there was a few women, and Sam's was one of them, uh, that uh, were mainly in the Grove, actually, which is where I was. I was around a lot. I was a photographer for local newspapers in the Grove when I was in my teens. Mm -hmm. um, then you I already on, knew. You knew that early. I worked for um, something called the Daily Planet, oh. like in the Superman cartoon. Yeah. But it was like a hippie underground paper that was distributed throughout South Florida, published by Jerry Powers, a.k.a. Jerry Pulver, who started Ocean Drive. Wow. Whoa. And that was his thing, his funky, hippie, stoner, lefty-leaning uh, underground paper at a time when um, the United States was uh, filled with independent newspapers, A, many more, and B, uh, specifically, some you know, young people's, you know, thing. They're basically stoner kind of leaning um, papers. And I worked for one of them in the Grove called The Daily Planet. And then I worked for a more conservative paper at the same time called The Village Post, published by Emily Gibb. And that was a really good paper, too. Good writers. And I was a photojournalist. Photojournalism. Why am I telling you this? No, it makes um, sense. Because that was like a different life. <laughs> Before I got into holography, I actually was a photographer exclusively, and uh, I grew up with photographer types. So it's. But your parents already like gave you the camera. Well, and when gave did you fold your first your camera? Being in the I family that you were in. I was like five. You know, it was a brownie. <laughs> Was it a bullex or is though? And then, when I, and then around five and a half, you know, when I'm like deep into the heart of kindergarten, um, uh, uh, um, I would take my little brownie to school, to kindergarten, and the teacher thought that 
um, it was some kind of a toy or a joke. But I was actually sincerely um, doing portraits of my kindergarten uh, mates. And they were all the same. They were all five, six years old, too. So we were all, uh, funny enough, at the same height. <laughs> oh, that's so great. Can you yes. Which is actually a key rule. If you're an adult and if you're photographing children's portraits, I highly recommend you get on their level. Yeah. You know, and I didn't have to go through that effort because you I were was there. You had a shortcut. And I ended up, my parents didn't tell me, but they submitted my pictures to uh, the armed forces, had a photography contest for children up to 16. And they submitted my portraits of my kindergarten uh, mates. And apparently, uh, I won an honorable mention, oh, which, is decent, which is decent, you know, really you know, pushing yeah. six years old. They could really give that, you more than that. I consider that That's a home run. That's impressive, considering you were up against, like, 16-year-olds. Exactly. <laughs> Oh my god. But when I was 16, ironically, that's when I actually started working professionally. Oh. And uh, this little newspaper. As a photojournalist or as a photographer? Uh, as a photojournalist, yes. That was mm -hmm. my the first time anyone paid me to take pictures. Well, probably some kids in high school or in junior high probably paid me uh, to like illustrate their little do a tang room science reports or whatever the heck they were doing. And mm -hmm. I was the Johnny on the spot guy who could actually photograph a picture out of an encyclopedia and make a print in my dark room and they could like glue it into their little do a tang report or whatever. So I actually probably was paid you know, five or so dollars by some fellow students at some point. You're like the, I'd forgotten about that part. Before wow. the printer, like before the printer, it yeah, was there was the no quickie way to there. slap it down. You couldn't do. You didn't have a Xerox or anything. You were wow. a Xerox no, machine. No, we had what they called mimeograph machines, and it was yeah. a much. I don't think they had Complex continuous tone or half tone ability. Mm -hmm. And also, as a kid, most people didn't have access. Kids didn't have access. You, know. you always created your own niche. So, yeah. So there was a thing called the Liberation News Service out of New York. Through no nepotism and no connection to my knowledge um, at all, by coincidence, complete coincidence, my brother was one of the three guys that started it in, in New York. And it was, um, he was much older than me, uh, 10 years older than me. And he was a writer. And so he and his friends had started this thing called the Liberation News Service in New York, which was um, uh, like the Associated Press for these underground papers. So uh, the writers, photographers, and cartoonists around the country in the different little enclaves, whether it was in Berkeley or Ann Arbor or Miami, whatever, those stories, cartoons, and photographs would be fed up to New York. Mm -hmm. They would copy them somehow and send them in snail mail to the respective newspapers that were part of this little link, uh, linked group. And no internet, per se, at the time, so everything was snail mail. The cartoonist, for instance, there was a gal named uh, Linda, man, uh, she did a thing called Ernie Pook. I'll think of her name, but it was a very funny cartoon. And then there was a guy named Matt Groening, and he had a cartoon, which we all know as from The Simpsons. Yeah. At the time, oh he was like washing dishes in a in a, a diner in West Hollywood, <laughs> uh, and 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 drawing this thing called Life in Hell, which was <laughs> before The Simpsons. Which he was living. And, and so those cartoons were being fed into the thing. So all the underground papers would have these Ernie Pooh cartoons and the and Life in Hell, and then the writers and the photographers, of which I was one writer, I mean photographer, those images got sent up. Well, I didn't realize that was happening, but the pictures started appearing 
my pictures uh, that I was taking in Miami started appearing in uh, these different papers, and there was going to be a, a, a convention here, two conventions, Democratic and Republican conventions in 1972. But four years before, there had been conventions in Chicago that were bloody, and it was not good. And so there was a lot of movement here, both by the sort of anarchistic lefty types and also by the federale, you know, local police and others to try to, like, get their act together before the convention so that there wouldn't be more bloodshed and it mm -hmm. would be somewhat calmer. And so I was photographing these people, the, the late Rocky Pomerantz, who was a fabulous uh, police chief in Miami Beach, and, uh, and then on the other side of the table... Um, Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman and, and, and a guy named Tom Fursad who started High Times magazine supposedly with high CIA money and later blew his brains out in the office there and oh, you know all sad. these unusual people that I was photographing. Um, oh, I was told to go photograph by... Um, well, I was photographing them for the Daily Planet and uh, Annie Leibovitz saw them. Uh, she was the photo editor for the Rolling Stone magazine cool. and she saw them in Berkeley and she called me, and I had just what? dropped out of high school. Oh, my God. I was 16 man. years old. How was that? Did you know it her? It was, well, of course, I didn't know her personally, but uh, the Rolling Stone was like the Bible to me. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, it was all about the musicians I loved and the photography, David Garr, and all these amazing photographs. I, I absolutely, that was to me. I was photographing <laughs> local bands here for the promoters and the newspapers and the um record companies and that sort of thing. I was already photographing musicians. But to me, the epitome of music photography was her work and what appeared in Rolling Stone magazine as a 15, 16-year-old. That was, that was it. Oh, so God. one day I got a call and this lady did say that. She says, I'm, she says this is Annie Leibovitz. And I'm like, <laughs> yes. Uh. And uh, she says, uh, listen, I, I need... I can't come to Miami to do or film the Republican Democratic conventions, and I saw your work in the Berkeley Barb. Can you cover this for me? And I'm like, yes, ma'am. What do I do? <laughs> what else would you say, right? Well, she had no idea. I had just dropped out of high school and that oh. I was 16 years old. And um, and uh, but I was like, yes, ma'am. What do I do? She says, okay, please. I need you to go to the Fountain Blue Hotel to the Poodle Bar and meet Hunter Thompson, and take it from there. And I was like, how do I know what he looks like? And she says, you'll figure that out. So somehow they let me into the bar. I'm 16. It's 10 in the morning. The guy was already three sheets to the wind. Oh, my God. And he basically said, you know, get out of here, kid. The story's in the street. And I didn't realize at the time how significant he was to the story, ultimately, because the book that my pictures illustrate uh, is called Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 1972, by Hunter S. Thompson. And... Um, I never thought to photograph him because I, I, I was there to photograph Others, what people, was right? happening, yeah. not the writer. Later, I kicked myself. <laughs> Why did I not photograph him? <laughs> but that was a, ex, an existence that I left for working with lasers and light and making holograms. What, what made you decide to leave that, leave photojournalism when you were like, was it too easy? Were you like successful already, like at 16 and it was, it just came too easy to you or was it just a calling that was well, like? That's very sensitive. Um, um, 
actually, there was a little article in the New York Times by a lady by the name of Peggy Sealthon, and she was a photography writer for the New York Times. And by some coincidence, I happened to pick up that issue because my parents had it, you know, around the house. They bought the Sunday Times. And, it, and she's writing a little article about the New York School of Holography opening up. And uh, I was like, whoa, you can learn how to do that? And I was 17 at that point and uh, going on 18, I guess. And, uh, and I had seen holograms when I was 12 in Coconut Grove. It was part of the Coconut Grove Art Show. It was a traveling exhibit on that little Fuller Street um, in a darkened place with a few lasers and some glass plates that appeared like windows into these little tableau in this eerie kind of granular looking red light. I had no idea what I was looking at and it made no sense whatsoever because, and I was already a photographer, you know, amateur, but looking into one of these glass plate windows, say eight by 10 inches, you would see, or I saw a dictionary with a magnifying glass sort of propped in front of it. But when I shifted my vantage point, this is at 12 years old, this is my first hologram. When I shifted my vantage point, I could use the magnifying glass to magnify different words depending wow. on my perspective. This made no sense to me from a photographic standpoint. I pretty much thought I understood how photo, you know image making works. You can't take a picture of a lens and have the picture of the lens act like the lens, this makes no sense at all. But that's the reality of the hologram. You're capturing the optical wavefront that's emanating off or through the object, and we capture the nuance of the optical nature of the subject so well that if the subject happens to be a lens or a gemstone or any other specularly behaving object, um, it continues to behave exactly like that. So. You for, saw this ad and for instance, the most uh, utilized so far application of holographic optics, because we can copy optics holographically, um, would be in a supermarket scanner that uses a laser for product code reading. Oh. And this has been going on for decades. Underneath that glass, there's a hologram that is supplacing conventional lenses, except it's really thin. It's cheaper to make, it's spinning really fast, and it's replacing a series of lenses, even though it's skinny, thin thing. It's phenomenal. It represents a revolution in optics, but it's happening literally under our nose every time we're at a supermarket for decades. And no and one most knows that this is happening. Would that also be like the price check machine where you like walk up to what it and it has like machine? lasers, the price check ones that it, you kind of like hold there up? As well. Oh, cool. Yeah, um, my friend sold a patent for $60,000 back in the early 70s, which was like a joke. Joke now, for sure. Because it is the de facto system used around the planet, yeah. $60,000 and all of money. But that's another story. <laughs> um, so really, um, once I went up to, to, my parents were kind enough to put the bill for me to go to New York oh, and so nice. spend a week up there. I had no idea why I was going other than pure curiosity. I was already doing okay as a kid who had no mortgage, no bills basically living with my parents so I could take pictures and get paid for them and pocket the whopping $25 or whatever they were paying me, you know, uh, buy a record or something, you know. And um, uh, so I, there was no reason, conscious reason, that I was going other than pure curiosity. Uh, when I got there, I thought I had um, 
some understanding. I was coming with some understanding of how this works because we're making images. And I've been doing that for years, so I've got to have this down, or at least part of it down. Very arrogant. I knew nothing. The technology was completely different. The methodology was completely different. The only thing that was even vaguely similar was the fact that you were using a black and white emulsion, very fine grain, high contrast black and white emulsion, similar to what's used in astrophotography, astronomical photography, or x-ray photography. Beyond that, and it's developed in a conventional way, uh, like you would develop a black and white piece of film, those are the two aspects that are similar to photography. The way the image is recorded and everything else about it is completely different. So you needed a completely different camera, completely bit different the film? The room was the camera. The room was the camera. So you're wow. inside the room, in the case of 13th Street, uh, where the museum, uh, where the School of Holography was, um, it was in a basement. Um, and, on 13th? Um, That's that? cool. On 13th. You know you New York a little? Yeah. I went, she went to school in New York. So yeah. I was like university and What was your speciality? Um, well, it was just fine arts at Parsons, but it's, you know, the little area. It's like, that's so great. You were right There's there. There's a little bronze plaque on that building. Apparently, um, the famous director of method acting starts with an S. I want to say Strasberg, Lee Strasberg, famous uh, director director and teacher of famous actors, like he had, I think Marlon Brando was one of his students, that guy, um, apparently uh, had their little studio in that building because there's a bronze plaque on the outside. Nothing about holograms, but uh, <laughs> it does mention Lee Strasberg. Um, no, I got hooked. And uh, when I came back to Miami, I told my mom and dad that I needed to buy a laser. They were, you know, it was just one week, the course? Yeah. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I, I, that changed your life. I, I learned, I, I, I learned next to nothing in one week. Uh, what was funny was uh, at the time, cause I couldn't understand it. I would ask my, uh, I asked the, the instructor, you know, well, can you tell me about this or something else outside the realm of the initial little general course? And he was like, well, that's 450 bucks. And, and you know, you have to sign up and you know, every little thing was like more expensive. So I basically figured before I'm going to give them thousands of dollars, maybe I could convince my parents to just buy the laser and some part and stuff and I'll figure out the rest, you know, <laughs> which is easily more easily said than done because it's one of the most compromised and, and somewhat aggravating uh, media that you could ever approach to work within because if anything moves less than like a hundred billionth of an inch while you're making the exposure, you don't get... Blur. You, you just get nothing. Yeah. It's like oh, nothing. nothing at all. It's like the final frontier, just space with nothing in it. <laughs> oh, no. So, so, so you, you cannot really photograph people like that because they uh, would always move, right? There's two methodologies for photographing people because I've done quite a few holographic portraits. One involves, in fact, I even brought you a couple as a gift, Yo, little baby ones of you. Gloria Trevi. Um, anyway, uh, there are two methodologies to capture humans or live subjects or moving subjects. One is instead of using the kind of laser that I had at the time, which is referred to as a continuous wave laser. Think of it as a floodlight compared to a strobe light, okay. a flash. And then a pulse laser, which basically is like a flash. Um, the flash's duration is maybe a dozen billionths of a second. With exposure times that short, you can capture bullet in flight, not just somebody's face or whatever. So that's one methodology, you use a pulse laser. The other way, which I did a lot of, was um, 
using a synthesis of holography and cinematography, where I used to film, and I still do on occasion, my subjects on a turntable, and oh. on occasion using a computer motion control track. And as the subject is slowly spinning on a large turntable, the motion picture camera is locked down, pointing at them, running along at, say, 24 frames a second. And, and the turntable is spinning at, let's say, one and a third RPM, so it takes 45 minutes to make a 360, and as that person is spinning, I'm filming them, and of course, by virtue of the fact they're spinning, I'm getting slightly offset perspectives from frame to frame. Okay. Those slightly parallaxially differentiated perspectives carry with them stereographic information, or stereophotogrammic information, if you want to look at it technically, and so you're probably familiar with stereo pairs, right? Mm -hmm. Left-right images. This has been around for 170 years. Yeah. Stereo pairs rely on that part of your brain that puts left and right images that are usually input from your left and right eyes together into one monolithic view mm -hmm. of whatever lies before you as a unified tableau. Uh, with some profundity and depth. Similar to the stereoscopes, you think? It looks like 3D, right? That, totally. that is like, it looks totally. 3D. I saw you that. You have two at, pictures. I used to have those stereoscopes. You would insert the card and it would be two different angles. No, but those, shots that, and then, but those are like photographs. It. I saw them at the SF MoMA. They are from like, I don't know, the black and white photographs. When was that Starting done? in the 1850s. Yes. 1850s, and right? Like it up, really, and then it just. But you have two photographs. Right next to each other. It, it has to be a certain 45 distance. degree angles, I think, isn't it? That the idea that they're in no, different they angles. No, they're flat. They're flat. They're printed flat, but they're angled in a certain way oh, that really? when you look at them, it turns them into one. Um, there are some displays that require them at an angle. Yeah. They utilize have, mirrors. Okay. I have that. You'll see that at my okay, place. Cool. Or you other, have glasses, and, too. Right. And then there's the antiquarian ones that are wood, mm -hmm. the so-called Victorian stereopticon. Yes. Oh, I have one of those, too. Neat. And uh, a lot of my practice revolves around um, the exposition of stereographic binocular tableau uh, through some methodology. My specialty is in autostereoscopic work, and that term simply refers to any 3D display that does not require any kind of viewer or glasses or anything. So I didn't make it up. It's an actual word. So you don't need the 3D glasses? Did you get it? No, no headset, no glasses, no nothing. Mm -hmm. So the media that I am most partial to that I work in in 3D are those that you just walk up to the piece and you're seeing it in 3D. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I prefer that because the more junk between you and the medium, you know, that you're, you know, you want, you're trying to dissolve the, you know, the whole suspension of disbelief on the highest level, really, because mm -hmm. of the hyper-realistic nature of the medium, usually. Um, so the last thing one wants, I would think, is some opportunance in the way of you and looking at the experience. Yeah. You know? um, but in certain situations, like when you have a room of 100 or 200 or 1,000 people and you want them all to have that experience, yes, yes, you have to hand out glasses and use a different methodology. So when the logistical scenario calls for it in terms of the number of people, of course, the glasses are, are for the moment, um, a de facto way to have everyone see in 3D at the same time a binocular experience. 
But if it's a more intimate thing like a gallery or a museum or someone's home or office mm-hmm. where you can walk up to the piece. Yeah, why not? Why, you know, mess with glasses. I mean, mm-hmm. this, is, this is the downfall right now, one of the many downfalls of adoption of VR. Uh, certainly in terms of long form types of things, nobody wants to wear this thing on their head for an hour and a half and watch a damn movie that way. Um, aside from uh, the, some of the offshoot experiences of Vertigo, that one gentleman was at my place last night from Berlin who told me that he had was working on development of a VR thing, and he's a programmer, and that at one point um, he got Vertigo when he took the glasses off that lasted for two weeks. Oh, God. And I thought, whoa, dude, That's I've never heard much. of that. But it's... Obviously possible it happened to him. Um, so, yeah, uh, VR is fantastic for certain things. I just don't think long-form entertainment right now is is part of it. I had a question. I wanted to ask, and I'm, I realize this is maybe a, I don't know, maybe not the right question, but have you ever figured out what, what, the fascination with the three D, like where that is coming from. Sure. Have you figured that Absolutely. out? Absolutely. Oh yeah. Um, most of us have been blessed, for lack of a better description, with the gift of stereoscopic binocular vision. Uh, sadly, about nine percent of the females and twelve percent of the males with perfect vision in both eyes cannot see in binocular stereo. Uh, the brain is biased towards processing the left or right cue, the so-called hero eye. And so if they close one eye they see, they open the other eye they see, they can see out of both eyes perfectly. But when they open both eyes at the same time, the brain is only processing the left one or the right one. So they're only getting a monocular cue and effectually not seeing binocular stereo. They can't see depth, basically. Not, not standing the way we still. Are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mentioned standing still because... Luckily for us, and those people especially, uh, binocular stereo is really only one set of cues that the brain uses for interpreting the world around you as a volumetrically robust scenario. Um, It's fabulous at up to about 14 feet. After about 14 feet, our eyes are too close together to properly discern whether something is relative distance of one thing to the next. Like I can barely see over there, there's some kind of a lamp hanging in, or something, a fan hanging down. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, a ceiling behind it. Honestly, I can't tell you if that lamp is five feet away from the background or 10 feet away from the background because it itself is about 20 feet away from me. So we lose this capacity all humans who have 3D vision lose the capacity for binocular stereo of any real significance after about 14 feet. It's just a matter of the proximity of our eyes. If we had bigger heads and further apart eyes, we'd be able to pull this off at a greater distance. But I believe it's probably because most of our interactions are very, yeah. you know, like this. You know, yeah, like the, and, you know. the life-threatening action. Right, would right, go right. On, right. Like, you got 14 somewhere. feet, you can escape. <laughs> yeah, right. but, uh, and it makes me wonder about elephants and things like that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Right now, I thought of an but, elephant head. But, but there is a huge data set that's coming from the light around you that carries a story about where it's been. Um, and, uh, and, and you can detect a little bit of that story by virtue of moving in relationship to your surrounds. 
So simply, if you close one eye, everything, if say you have perfect 3D vision, okay, great. You close one eye and all of a sudden everything goes flat. Okay, because you're only, you're only dealing with a monocular cue. Okay, however, so everything goes flat the minute I close one eye. However, if I go like this, all of a sudden, I'm feeding uh -huh. the brain, even with one eye, what's called, uh, through what's called motion parallax, a host of refreshed images, if you will, um, if you could separate them, uh, as I move, that are cueing my brain to realize, oh, geez, I can see from that, the edge of her head that, that she's obviously in front of that pole because I get the reveal when I go here of the pole, and this way, it, you're blocking that pole again. So my brain is using these motion parallax effects to, to cue me to depth perception, whether or not I really have binocular stereo. And this is a godsend to people who don't have binocular stereo. They can learn how to triangulate and, you know. Move. Yeah. Like move Even around. Without bumping into Even, stuff. Yeah. yeah. I'm kind of a student. I became a student of visual perception um, around the time I built the first laser lab because I was seeing a lot of things that I had no real handle on and it was also really fascinating to read about as I came to understand that um, what I thought as a you know teenager uh, what I thought was super objectivity in the course of the visuals you know in terms of my visual sensibilities I soon learned was absolutely incorrect and that so much that was going on in the visual processing was um, the superimposition of my expectations, which parallels ancient Eastern philosophical thought in the form of um, in the Buddhist concept that we're projecting the reality that we see. And not being a Buddhist nor uh, an Easterner, um, I didn't really grow up with that kind of a mindset. So... Um, and especially as a photographer, um, you, you know, this is hard to do without visual aids, but um, if you have a hologram, let's say the two ladies, the two of you here, if I had a hologram too, and I cut it in half, I would see her in 3D and I could look down at her shoes, but I could also shift my vantage point over here and see you from this chunk of the hologram, even though this half was removed. I could still see you and look oh. down at your toes or whatever. So the information in a hologram is dispersed across the entire image plane like a window into a scene. Wow. And it's a completely different uh, precept and, and, and methodology to how ho photographs are made. In a photographic situation, in its most essential form, you have a pinhole as opposed to a fancy lens essentially like a camera obscura. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in its most essential form. So through that pinhole, you're able to get this multi-dimensional light wave front to collapse onto the f back end of the camera. This is an extreme abstraction of how light behaves. Light is carrying with it information about everywhere it's been and everything around it. I did that? Sorry. Light <laughs> is carrying information about everything it's, it's reflected off of or transmitted through. I know this for a fact because I'm only allowing this much light into my eye right now. That's about the size of my pupil. And yet all of you, both of you, every, all the contents of the room, not only in front of me, but obviously from behind me, that light too is combining with the light off of you. So we have this omnidirectional wavefront that's created by this cacophony of bouncing photons. 
they carry with it information about where they've been. Photography, sadly, only captures the intensity and the frequency of those of that light wavefront, the colors and lights and darks. The phase information is completely lost. Is it for you about capturing? Like I, I think about two things. One thing is perspective, because as a photographer, you choose one perspective and from what I understand what you mentioned right now your perspective is like all around right you don't have to choose one perspective you can capture all the perspectives in some cases we capture not, that way not all of them but on one horizontal lane plane right well it depends on the format some holograms are cylindrical some are flat um, uh -huh. actually I dreamed since I was very small about this idea of a spherical medium which is would be more true to light Perhaps come down from the ceiling, hit this little sphere, and bam, the entire room would reconstruct around you. Oh, <laughs> super cool. Nobody but is that. it is it for you about getting closer to reality? Is that it? Is it kind of like the quest of capturing a moment like it truly is? Well, this is a really good question. Um, uh, as it turns out, I don't really give a damn about that. You don't? No. I, it's a very hard and been a lengthy pursuit in the various media that I work in to uh, achieve realism. But that is not really, uh, I don't find that particularly that interesting. Mm -hmm. Challenging as hell, but not that interesting. It's not your goal. What's your what I mean thing? is, I can look, at, I can do a beautiful portrait of you, mm -hmm. right? I can also look at you. Uh -huh. Okay, so I mean, unless the portrait is going to be evocative and take me to some point to see you in a way that maybe I might not notice when I normally look at you, uh -huh. and some you know inner aspect of of your being is somehow revealed in that moment or what have you, fabulous. Um, I guess that would be a home run. Um, uh, but generally speaking, I can still look at you, and if I watch you long enough, I'll catch that emotion that was in that image. Right. But um, I have proven to myself, uh, as well as others, um, and others have proven as well, that what interests me is how do we see that which we can't see? Mm. And so um, Dr. Gabor, who invented holography, his actual goal was not in 1947 was not to invent a three-dimensional imaging technique. He was simply looking to develop a means of magnification that would not require lenses. That was his concept. And your audience can look into that deeper if they're interested in that. My point is mainly that it is somewhat serendipitous that when he tried his experiment, the images were floating in space. He wasn't looking to do that. So I took that as a cue when I got into Hilarvi, that if Dr. Gabor can discover a three-dimensional imaging technique like holography en route to improving a two-dimensional imaging technique, then what the heck is a holographer, perhaps myself, going to discover one day en route to improving a three-dimensional imaging technique, perhaps a window into another dimension that we haven't really seen? Mm -hmm. And that sort of gamble is what I've spent my life on, mm -hmm. at least working in holography. The last seven years, I've been working in another medium, trying to finesse it to a point where uh, it might reveal something that we haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. uh, the medium is also almost 100 years old. It's called um, 3D integral photography or lenticular photography, and it involves doing multi-frame captures. 
uh, from slightly different perspectives, and then bringing them together uh, into a monolithic three-dimensional view through the use of an array of lenses, which are the so-called lenticules. Um, it's been a process that's been around, um, uh, the principle of which in the early 1900s by Gabriel Lippmann, the original Fly's Eye work, and then the guy who actually made it happen uh, commercially, uh, uh, Bonnet in Paris in 1933, you could actually have been walking along the Champs-Élysées in Paris in 1933 and stumbled into the guy's place that pretty much looked like my place. <laughs> <laughs> and you could have a portrait done pretty much like I'm doing, uh, which is kind of mind-blowing. Wow. Yeah. It's a Incredible. bit of a throwback. Yeah. <laughs> okay. My last question before Maria asks her last question is... Um, one, one more? Yeah, Maria asked one, I asked one. Oh, I have the very last one. She, she has the oh, second oh, I, no, last I didn't catch I don't remember that. Yeah. I'm curious <laughs> to know, um, how long do you feel from the moment that your parents um, were on board to get you to, how long do you feel that it took you to finesse the process of what you do? Oh my, that's really a never-ending thing. Okay. Um, you know, there's always uh, crazy ghosts in the machine that are unexpected. Um, as I said, most of the media that I work in are extremely compromised. I've had, when I've taught it, because I do technology transfer and I also do, you know, workshops and stuff. And um, when I've taught it, I've had grown men almost in tears. Oh no. So it's, it's seriously, um, not that that doesn't mean women can't handle it, but in any event, uh, uh, seriously, um, probably more so from my experience. Uh, but no, it is a crazy compromised medium. Um, and restate your question. Like, do you, like my question was, when did you feel that you perfected it? But as you said, it's an ongoing process. You always encounter different things. I think as far as mastery goes, there's a nice book. I can't remember his, the title. title is Mastery. I can't remember the author's name. He was a martial artist. That's maybe less than 100 pages. And uh, it talks about you know, how you find, and I relate, you you find yourself, whether you're playing music or martial arts or you know, any medium that you're practicing, uh, you, most of the time you spend on a plateau. And once in a while you feel a little bump, mm -hmm. like, whoa, I, I sort of got this part now. And then you're on a plateau a long time. And then all of a sudden you feel a little bump and actually have the self-awareness that, you're kind of getting this down, Upward you know, movement, yeah. and um, so that occurs. So there are these little glimpses where you know, hey, you know, that might be my Mona Lisa. Okay, what do I do next? You know, uh, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, the challenge of you know what is there to be revealed. Um, so there's an overarching aspect to my practice that has nothing to do with the content mm -hmm. that I am working with. Um, it took me many years to figure this out, actually fairly recently, that it makes no difference what I'm making an image of, um, that the overarching process is that the person viewing the image is, height, is experiencing a heightening of their sensibilities of three-dimensional space. Invariably, as told to me by many, many people, they leave the experience of looking at one of these images whether it's holography or lenticular, what have you, or stereographic, they leave these experiences with a heightened sense of three-dimensionality of the world around them, which is there all the time. But no one wakes up and says to themselves, wow, 
I still have binocular stereo vision. Let's rock this day. You know? <laughs> Nobody says that. They okay? should. I'll say that tomorrow. <laughs> Until they lose it. And, and then they regret amen. it. And then they regret amen. it. Okay, Maria, Very your question. Very last question. You've been sitting on a magical rocking chair for 50 minutes. Does it levitate? Not yet. It grants you three wishes. Oh, my. Maybe it grants you three wishes. You can wish for anything and everything, but you have to say them out loud for them to become true. That's, That's true. the rule of the rocking chair. So what are your three wishes? Okay. Um, on a more global level, um, it would be great to have um, love, peace, and understanding. Mm. That okay. would be just really novel. Yes. And um, on, a, on a personal uh, scale, um, I would like the opportunity to, um, to delve back into research more because that's really what makes my tail wag. I don't, you know, I, I become apparently an expert at running a not-for-profit not organization, but not on purpose. And so, <laughs> and, uh, and then my third wish... Well, it's just to, to have light, to have more light in the world. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's a lot of dark stuff happening. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's anything new. And we have uh, this incredible house of mirrors, electronic house of mirrors, with which, uh, which extends tentacularly to everyone's palm. And, uh, uh, and, and so it becomes a bit of an echo chamber. I know that word has been, that term has been used. Um, we have a choice. I was a student of Buckminster Fuller's. I still am. And he was one of the main people who brought uh, awareness in the 60s to the fact that um, we're not just passengers here. We're crew members. This is a spaceship. We have X amount of resources. However, we have limitless imagination. And it's through that innovation, creativity, resourcefulness and imagination that we can break through these apparent challenges that seem so insurmountable. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. We're so happy you came to visit. I wish we had Thank two you hours so much, with Mark. you. That was amazing. And um, we'll be making a studio visit. Um, for those of you listening, check out our website. We're going to link um, Mark's link um, to ours. And we'll see you guys next week. All righty. Okay, bye, everybody. Bye, guys. Thanks again for listening. So super for having me. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.